This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Hospira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, Dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing healthcare costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Mark Mursky, MD, PhD, to discuss his article published in June, Critical Care Medicine, Safety, Efficacy, Cost-Effectiveness of a Multidisciplinary Percutaneous Tracheostomy Program. Mursky is Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine and is Director of Neuroscience Critical Care Units at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you for being here with, with us, Dr. Mursky. You're very welcome, Jeffrey. So the first question that I would like to know is, what brought about this analysis? I mean, there's a lot of ICUs that have gone to doing uh, percutaneous dilatational tracheostomies at the bedside or doing tracheostomies at the bedside. And you proposed in your paper a very nice program of keeping it very systematic and very unified. What made you go to that kind of a program, and what made you decide you wanted to write a paper about it? Well, those are all very good uh, questions. First of all, the impetus for looking into the issue and trying to and creating a program stemmed from our original intent to look at three particular areas that we identified as potential areas for improvement in our hospital, particularly in how it reflects on airway and tracheostomy. I mean, first of all, operative tracheostomies, by and large, are very inefficient, especially taking patients from the ICU transport time into the operating room for ostensibly a 20 or 30-minute procedure and then taking the patient back to the ICU uh, with anesthesia support, et cetera. So by the end of the, the whole picture, it takes approximately one and a half hours or more sometimes to take a patient from the ICU for one procedure. And during that time, the OR is waiting to accommodate the patient. So even patients who are scheduled for a tracheostomy in the operating room, the, the process is inefficient. And typically, OR tracheostomies are not uh, emergent procedures and scheduled on a standby basis. So it is quite routine for intensive care physicians may wait uh, two, three, or more days before tracheostomies perform once they've identified a patient for the procedure. Uh, so that's the first issue, the sort of the inefficiency of the operative procedure, and the second is the inefficiency of the ICU team. The reason to have an airway placed in a patient is multifactorial, but usually is surrounds the issues of the patient requiring chronic vent support for either ventilatory management or airway protection. And often is the case that once the airway is managed to a tracheostomy, uh, the patient can be, if weaned successfully, quickly is able to go to the next level of care outside of the ICU, which, as you know, patients cannot leave an ICU intubated to, for example, a chronic vent unit or rehab, but they can if they have a tracheostomy, if they've been able to wean or just have the airway protection of a tracheostomy. So the the ICU efficiency can potentially be improved by avoiding the procedure uh, in a timely fashion. And lastly, the, what we looked at was the fact that even though percutaneous tracheostomies were being performed in our hospital environment, uh, they were not being performed in a structured manner. So a surgeon or other physician trained in this can elect at his or her discretion to perform the procedure. Typically, the resources may not always be optimal, and we have had, uh, looking past in the years, airway sentinel events that can be related directly to the 
suboptimal um, scheduling performance of the procedure. So the hospital is very engaged in trying to reduce our airway adverse events to zero because after all, percutaneous tracheostomy is elective procedure, so serious complications should be held to effectively a zero rate. So those were the three programmatic goals that we approached the hospital with, and we actually wrote a business model right from the start. This was about 2004, 2005, that recognized or elucidated for the medical center the institutional benefits of the ICU efficiency and the OR efficiency and the sentinel vents, and also provided them programmatic costs and putting together a programmatic structure too. And from the start, we decided that because of some of our issues that came from our root cause analysis of our own adverse event, felt strongly that there needed to be an airway expert as well as a surgical trained specialist at the bedside to reduce the complication rates to zero. So from there, the thought was from getting to incorporate an anesthesia element, the surgical element proposal. So I want to talk a little bit about the structured approach that you mentioned. And what you did, you know, the readers will see as they read the article is that you implemented your tracheostomy team and compared the, basically, after a year of uh, implementation of your team compared, what was it, 2008, and compared it back to 2004. Yes. And it seems, you know, you, you mentioned a structure approach. I think whether it's putting central venous catheters in or doing tracheostomies, if there's a lot of variability in the way people are practicing, it's very difficult to do any kind of quality improvement or process control. So can you talk about how, so now at Johns Hopkins, it is fair to say that there is a Johns Hopkins way of doing a, a bedside tracheostomy. Is that a fair statement? Yes. And and so you've reduced variability in practice on the way you've done tracheostomies five years ago compared to today. Oh, absolutely. So can we talk about some of those standardizations? I mean, uh, the use of capnography, fiber optic bronchoscopy, who the players are who do the tracheostomy. I mean, are surgeons doing this in intensive care units absent an anesthesia provider? What is the monitoring that goes on? What's the preoperative assessment that goes on every single trach at Johns Hopkins now? Great. Um, in terms of our providers, our program has adopted consensus with everyone so that there is an anesthesia provider at the bedside that does utilize uh, not only his or her skill set to provide a um, typical anesthetic that we've decided on that would be optimal for everyone, but also he or she will, will drive the proctoscope that we have agreed is will be part of the programmatic approach. So every patient has hyperoptic bronchoscopy assisted tracheostomy. The surgical side, we have um, physicians from general and trauma surgery laryngology, and also we've uh, brought on board interventional pulmonology. So we have a crew of about uh, 10 to 15 proceduralists that all have been credentialed to perform the procedure in the same manner uh, with slight, you know, uh, agreed upon variations, but credentialed through the two sort of stand sort of, um, leaders of the surgical side, which was which is one of the otolaryngologists and one of the trauma surgeons extensively are the head, and they are re required to credential any new incoming staff member who wants to join the team. Similarly, on the anesthesia side, we credential anesthesiologists to perform the procedure. Obviously, anyone can do a tracheostomy as a surgeon, and anyone who's an anesthesiologist can 
perform the anesthetic, but we credential them so that they have a sort of more uniform manner and expectation so that we can then pair up or schedule any of those anesthesiologists with any of the proceduralists and then each will expect the same from the other side day in and day out. So prior to your team, were people doing bedside tracheostomies absent um, uh, an anesthesia provider just going in there and giving people propofol and VEC and, and proceeding? Yeah, so the prior history uh, was that any surgeon um, could perform a tracheostomy and there was periods where the surgeon, typically a trauma surgeon, would even just do that with his surgical fellow and there would be no anesthesiologist and no other support system and that that, those are sort of situations that lead to potential complications when there's no airway expert and you get into particular bleeding or hypoxic issues. And is the same as far as use of fiber optic bronchoscopy, was there a group of people that were getting bronchoscopy and others were just getting it based on the feel of the endotracheal tube? Before 2004, uh, there was a subset of physicians like myself who worked closely with one or two of the surgical providers to do some ad hoc tracheostomies, and on those occasions we would use a bronchoscope because that's what I would use. But as I said, in other cases there'd be no bronchoscope or no anesthesia provider. So now we have this complex team of anesthesia. You've got a nurse practitioner who basically does all the perioperative assessment, our credentialed surgeons, our credentialed anesthesia providers, use of fiber optic bronchoscopy on every, or every bedside tracheostomy, and capnography through the entire procedure. And you ended up comparing the new new era to the old era, and what is it that your group found? Well, with regards to comparing 2004 and 2008, and the reason we compared those four years was because programmatically um, there was sort of a stepwise increment um, and putting it to force and gathering all the data. So that is why we had that sort of four-year break because it was easier to compare more pre and as the 2004 era and 2006 we had a, uh, a limited intervention without a full backing of the hospital in terms of the complexity of the program in 2008 we had the full as you had mentioned we had a nurse practitioner involved a scheduler uh, as an example nurse practitioner in our program is irreplaceable in the sense that we have for example a database that tracks all our seven adult ICUs and we know every patient in the hospital that's been intubated for four days or more and that's when our clock starts and with her ability to intervene in all the ICUs and provide the educational support etc over the last few years it is now the intensivists and the ICUs who are now calling us on day three already alerting us to the fact that they have a intubated patient that might require a tracheostomy, so it's become irreplaceable in the ICUs for this program, and a large part has gone to the fact that we've had presence in the ICUs to bring on the educational component and also to track all these patients in our database. Um, so that's why the 2008 was put into force as the first full year of all the data. And what we found was, uh, as would be expected, since we have a Monday, Wednesday, Friday scheduling system we can pretty much guarantee any patient to get a tracheostomy within 48 hours of being requested from an ICU, and that's what the data in the paper shows in one of the tables, and that compares very favorably when you see the pre-2008 data where 
you get a tree count to be born. So the timing in the uh, the ICU was uh, profoundly decreased uh, to a very efficient level. Also, the operating time, uh, even though these are both percutaneous periods of 2004 to 2008, all those numbers in terms of total number of tree counts we've greatly increased in 2008. Our total operating time in the ICU went down by almost 50%, which saves everyone time and effort. What we do, we schedule these trakes so that we can do up to five in one afternoon. Sort of have a little gypsy crowd of uh, our trach team go from unit teams based on the schedule of patients. The interesting thing we also found was although the total length of stay in our 2004 data in 3-4 were showing that tracheostomies do not change the total hospital length of stay of a patient, in particular when you look at patients who primarily have the the airway, uh, the artificial airway like an endotracheal tube in for predominantly airway protection reasons, which is number of the neuroscience patients, patients that had strokes or airway surgery, et cetera, that data, when subdivided out, they had a profound reduction in the length of stay in the ICU post-tracheostomy, and that did go to defend the efficiency of having the patients not spend so much time in the ICU for those who can leave without a ventilator. So that was a great uh, benefit. And we've had since the whole program was inaugurated about 2006, we've had a zero sentinel events, which is the full chart defined as any uh, moderate to severe complication regarding airway or bleeding and risk. So that immediately means to the hospital they have much less liability exposure, because as you know from an anesthesia concern, critical care that airway disasters are sort of at the very top of the list of things that get physician teams into trouble. So you have your, your program and you've shown significant reduction in complications. You've shown um, significant reduction in the actual procedural related time. Uh, you've created more throughput for your operating room. Uh, but the, And you'd mentioned already that you saw a significant increase in the number of tracheostomies between 2004 and 2008. Would you care to comment on that? Is that perhaps because we've made the process of doing a bedside tracheostomy so much more streamlined that you perhaps are doing tracheostomies in patients that you weren't doing earlier before? Or is that an issue of volume or acuity or change in practice? Uh, well, the streamlining allows us certainly to capture a greater cohort of patients who, in whom a tracheostomy, I guess, seems appropriate for the, by the intensive care team's decision. Clearly, um, the two groups that are getting trachs now that did not perhaps some years ago were those that the intensive care team would battle out with the patient over the course of two or three weeks and finally extubate the patient. Um, so those kind of patients are much less common now. Uh, so that it that immediately would lead to an increase in tracheostomy procedures in that cohort. And then, of course, we do uh, some patients who don't survive to hospital discharge. And then they may not have ever been extubated before they passed away and hence would have terminally gone to be extubated. 
some of those cases we um, transition them to a tracheostomy and they could not survive. So they were not extubated or uh, discharged. Now, in your team, you know, you say you're doing this full time. You've got all these providers that are uh, basically designated to participate in this tracheostomy team. Requires a financial justification given today's economic times, and, and you and your authors, co-authors, made that financial justification which, and wrote it out as a pro forma. Can you expand on what your findings were as from a financial perspective? Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, we went into this with a business plan, and we modeled what our expectations were from our program, and some of them hit the mark and actually some did not. Uh, we had expectations that actually we might, by this time, by 2008, 9, 10, be at the three to 400 trachs a year with the concomitant benefit of that level of efficiency. We are holding steady at around 220 to 250 tracheotomies per year. Um, the And I think we are capturing every patient who's possible possibly can be gotten to. So I think where we plateaued as a demonstration that we reached basically maximum. And we had thought that maybe we'd be even higher. Um, but in terms of the other metrics with our, particularly our reduction of length of stay for certain populations in our ICU and the potential to backfill those ICU beds with new OR cases, um, that has generated a very healthy revenue increase for the hospital, and that has fueled the, uh, the system to where the hospital is very happy to subsidize the cost of providing some pro-fee subsidy to the uh, surgical anesthesia staff, as well as provide the equipment and the nurse practitioner generate support, which I think in our table amounts to somewhere close to about a $500,000 allotment. And we've also, as, as I mentioned before, we've had absolutely zero uh, liability issues in terms of airway in our ICUs, which again, sort of the cloud that has dissipated from the institution. I think airway, everyone uh, looks upon airways as a potential harbinger of disaster. So just to have a program where that not now seems to be a problem is uh, a big weight off the shoulders of the uh, legal office here. So prior to the, implement, the use of your team and reduction of, you know, particularly in the neurocritical care unit, that's where you seem to do this analysis, there were OR cases that were being delayed because of inadequate neurocritical care capacity? Yeah, so it does go, go hand in hand with the fact that uh, our hospital functions at uh, almost complete capacity in terms of our ICU uh, beds. So we are always right at the limit of trying to get additional cases in. And although we sort of fit the OR schedule time and time again, if you open up another bed, uh, a surgeon would easily find a manner to get another patient scheduled for that day rather than delay it to the next day. So the caseload for surgery has gone up. So I think that's that's an important thing to to kind of outline is that and, 
I'm sorry, and sir. The second thing is, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we now perform less than 5% of our tracheostomies at Johns Hopkins in the operating theater. So that also equates to OR efficiency because those that hour and a half type of case for tracheostomies you would, as we mentioned before, is now that time can be used for a more robust surgical procedure than to the hospital with a lot more um, reimbursement friendly than uh, tracheostomies. And and yet in the in the initial part of the paper you explained that you waited 96 hours until the consult went in on these patients. So somebody might ask if a patient comes in on Tuesday, they have a devastating you know hemorrhagic stroke. It's clear that they're going to be require long-term mechanical ventilation. What were the issues that why you waited 96 hours? Because some of those relate to the financial issues as well. Um, why wait 96 hours if I could trick them on say Wednesday and then perhaps you know reduce my ICU length of stay, improve throughput, and increase capacity of the intensive care unit in the operating room? Oh, that's a good point you brought up. I I apologize for the rather non-clarity then of the uh, the manuscript. What I was commenting on and we're describing in that um, methodology was that our program, looking as I said, we have we track it by database all the patients in the ICU. We approach the intensive care team at 96 hours. But if the intensive care team approaches us even day one after admission, like a trauma patient, they know the patient's going to need a tracheostomy. We won't wait four days and start our clock. We will immediately process and engage a tracheostomy. Oh, I'm glad you did clarify that because I was confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. That's a good point. I should have, uh, <laughs> when I was resubmitting, I was <laughs> make sure that was not. Well, I read I read these manuscripts at my home with my five children, so it certainly could be a distraction issue on my part. Uh, have you expanded this into other ICU bedside procedures, be they PEGs, greenfield filters, abdominal washouts? Uh, well, uh, in our particular program, it's now we what we've had we have incorporated gastroscopy tubeless. And roughly, I did I don't I, paper clearly concentrates on the tracheostomy portion, but now about 65% of all our tracheostomy requests are with intensive percutaneous gastroscopy together as a tandem. So we do, we now do those two procedures together in about 40 minutes. And is, have elements of that procedure been standardized as well, you know, in regards to... It has, and we will be bringing out some publication probably uh, within the year. It's interesting that, that we've credentialed the same providers for that task, and that includes our pulmonary interventionalists who now do gastroscopies and, and our ear, nose, and throat docs, as well as the trauma surgeon team. So everyone is doing the gastroscopies, and we've had, again, no complications with them. Uh, no, I take that back. We had one... Uh, course, we'll put that in the data set, but we had a new gastroscopy tube that was introduced to this hospital, which actually had the, uh, I wouldn't say it's defective, but required a different sort of methodology to it, and then we had patients that a leak posted, but it is part of our procedural process now, and in fact, we either post the patient for tracheostomy alone or trach peg, and then with the latter, we know from the state anesthesia side that we have an anesthetic that will be last for about 40 minutes instead of 15, 20 minutes, 
and proceed along those lines have all the attendance slides that are there. Well, I really think this is a, a very exciting paper, and the reason why I was really interested in it is that I don't know how anybody can do good QI with so much variability in practice and, and let provide cost-effective care, and, and clearly that must be your ilk uh, to pursue both this with the tracheostomies and other bedside procedures. But it seems to be very difficult to get people to come to consensus on standardization of practices, be it central lines, you know, antibiotic rotations or something like this. Right. Could you describe some of your barriers and, and some of your successes of how you got such a diverse group of people to agree, one, that this was something that was good, and two, to agree on, on your methodology and, and how you go about doing this on a daily basis? I have to say, Jeffrey, that I am probably most proud of the fact that this program came to be as a multidisciplinary uh, approach that, as you just said, um, different providers from different lines of training came together and put their ideas and uh, protocolized in terms of the proper guidance and field procedures. I mean, all bought in, and every service in the hospital was put on the program as a kind of monument to how things can be done um, regarding the, the destroying any barriers that exist. I mean, as you, I'm sure, know well, that sometimes anesthesia and surgery have a big divider between them, and that can set back that can be the case between different even divisions of surgery and also intensive intensivists, and we brought in the pulmonary critical care team alongside otolaryngologists and trauma surgeons. And they, we have quarterly meetings where we, and the tracheostomy group, where we bring in all our issues and how we want to programmatically advance the, the, the process, and anesthesia is bought in, and of course the department heads are bought in, and the hospital likewise, because it, um, the results have forthcoming to showcase how well things can work. Well, I certainly congratulate you on a well-done manuscript, but I really congratulate and take my hat off on, on pulling a project like this together in a very diverse environment like a university hospital. Um, that takes, you know, it takes vision and it takes leadership and it takes excellent communication skills, so well done. Well, thanks, and I, you know, I like, it's not noted in the manuscript, of course, but this was also... Process that I helped create here was one where I was trying to offer an academic path as well, in the sense that we have now over six, we're on our seventh publication of this programmatic piece, um, and everyone is contributing, you know, in terms of their work effort to become, you know, co-authors, and so everyone is succeeding in building their resume just uh, by participating. One of the things I didn't mention in the paper is that if you look at what are the criteria for determining whether a patient is suitable for a percutaneous tracheostomy or whether someone should have an open is in the surgical literature still quite unclear. And we have, that's where many of our publications have been is trying to extend or define those, those limits. So we've published that you, we've done patients with coagulopathies which is an important piece of knowledge when you have patients who are either on blood thinners or have DIC or some post-trauma uh, coagulation defect. 
And we've also looked at habitus. You know, what are the constraints? Why would you not uh, consider tree calcium? And what we found is that we have very, very few limitations that are absolute. And it does come down to FiO2 still for us, that, that we just rather be in the OR if, it, if someone's a very high peak for FiO2. And the other one is anatomical. If someone has a writing, uh, high writing and on an artery, and we just don't know the anatomy of beneath the, uh, the skin of the neck too well, so we want to be in a more controlled environment. But, you know, we've done massive patients. We've done patients on two or three, two LVADs together. <laughs> In fact, those very sick, complex patients are actually the, the ones that benefit the most from having a bedside trach done because you probably can recognize from your own times of just transporting someone with uh, uh, an assist device and uh, on uh, TVHD, et cetera, all down the hallway, it's just a, an accident waiting to happen. So if they can stay in their room and uh, perform a procedure at ICU bedside safely, powerful argument to, to have that kind of a program. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that you'd like to share? Well, you mentioned the limitations, so quickly I'll say, look, uh, this is a one-hospital setting. We are putting it forward to our sister hospital here, but, uh, and as I mentioned before, this is not a prospective classic randomized trial because it's really hard to do that in a, when you're evaluating a new program because you typically can't offer a true controlled population. Either you do one way or you don't. Uh, and, you know, the data is, although it was prospectively collected, we had to use two different years, uh, et cetera. So, you know, it's it's not perfect, um, but it's a large cohort, uh, and I think it, uh, it illustrated all the issues we were trying to tackle. So I think from that end, we were happy with it. I'm glad Crickler came in. Their programs will look at it and say maybe we can build something from this. Yeah, I certainly think that um, there'll be hospitals around the country who will take this paper and at least use it as a, a very uh, significant starting point of standardizing their practices and, and hopefully, you know, trying to reduce variability of practice and, and get improvement outcomes like you've shown. We've been talking today to Dr. Mark Mursky, who is a professor of anesthesia and critical care at Johns Hopkins University, and he has a paper coming out June of 2012 in critical care medicine titled Safety, Efficacy, and Cost-Effectiveness of a Multidisciplinary Percutaneous Tracheostomy Program. Dr. Mursky, thanks for joining me today on Eye Critical Care. Thank you. So this concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash care for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Hospira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad, integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. 
He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.